Please listen carefully. Hello and welcome to the Film Revere Podcast, episode number 11. This week brought to you by the Film Revere Patreon page and Audible. I'm your host, Zach Hamilton. Our guest for today's episode is award-winning composer Robert Miller. But first, let's get into some industry news. According to Sunday's estimates, Marvel's Black Panther is headed for a massive $218 million domestic debut over the four-day President's Day weekend at 4,000 North American locations. The film's estimated three-day gross of $192 million is the highest debut ever for a February film and the fifth highest of all time. As of Sunday, Marvel's Black Panther's combined domestic and international box office sales were $361 million. The 2018 BAFTA Awards took place yesterday. Some of the award highlights are as follows. Best Film went to three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Best Director went to Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. Leading Actress went to Frances McDormand for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Leading Actor was awarded to Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour. Best Animated Film went to the Disney Pixar film Coco. Best Original Screenplay, Martin McDonough for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And lastly, Best Cinematography went to Roger Deakins for Blade Runner 2049. Again, these are just some of the winners for the 2018 BAFTA Awards, and a full list can be found in the link dump for this episode at filmrevere.com. Black Panther soundtrack curator Kendrick Lamar and his label Top Dog Entertainment in partnership with Interscope Records hosted several free screenings of Black Panther for Kids and Watts. The screenings took place on February 17th at theaters in Nickerson Garden Projects, Jordan Downs Projects, and Imperial Courts Projects. All of this was done in an effort to help fans who could not afford tickets to see the film see Black Panther. Bleecker Street has announced 2018 release dates for several of its upcoming films. On Chesil Beach will be released on May 18th. Papillion, starring Charlie Hunnam, will be released on August 24th. And Colette will be released September 21st. Moving forward, not only is there a proper feature film adaptation of Laser Unicorn's crowdfunded short film Kung Fury in the works, it appears... Arnold Schwarzenegger and Michael Fassbender are attached to the project. The original director of Kung Fury, David Sandberg, will be returning to direct the feature-length version of the film, and 2017's It producers David Katzenberg, Seth Graham Smith, and Aaron Schmidt will be producing the film as well. Lastly, for those diehard Stranger Things fans, there will be at least three action figures released later this year in the fall. The three characters will be Will, Mike, and the punk version of Eleven. Based on the likeness of the actors Noah Schnapp, Finn Wolfhard, and Millie Bobby Brown, each figure is designed with more than 12 points of articulation to allow for dynamic posing. The toys come with retro-themed packaging and a Stranger Things branded display case. They also have some miniature props. Mike and Will each will have a removable backpack, and Eleven comes with an alternative hand and a mask. Now on to the trailer jobs. The following films or television shows released trailers this past week and are available to see now. The Karate Kid spinoff series Cobra Kai, Ready Player One, Incredibles 2, Uncle Drew, and rounding out the list, Rampage. As always, links to all trailers mentioned can be found in the episode description at filmrevered.com. Coming up next, I have an interview with award-winning composer Robert Miller. Robert has been involved in film, television, and the concert hall for over 25 years his most recent work includes the 30 for 30 series for espn the documentary short knife skills and eugene jarecki's imaginative documentary the king robert also has another documentary that will debut on hbo this year titled atomic homefront lastly robert recently worked with the new york city ballet on the wind still brings so please stay tuned as we will now be taking a quick commercial break This week's episode is brought to you by us, the Film Revere Podcast. Are you a fan of the show? Do you want to be involved in the start of a community of film fans? If so, check out our all-new Film Revere Podcast Patreon page at patreon.com slash filmrevered. 
Here you will find behind-the-scenes posts about the show, receive early access to guest announcements and episodes. You can also choose a reward which will have me feature your name in a shout-out at the end of one episode a month. There are so many more rewards to choose from, so please be sure to check out our page at patreon.com slash filmrevered. Once again, that's patreon.com slash filmrevered. For people on the go, there's Audible. Audible offers over 180,000 audiobooks to listen to on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. This week, Audible is giving Film Revered podcast listeners a slamming deal. Go to audibletrial.com slash frpodcast for a free 30-day trial and more importantly, get a free audiobook on us. Once again, go to audibletrial.com slash frpodcast. That's audibletrial.com slash frpodcast. Thanks again to Audible for their support and thank you listeners. Now back to the show. Well, welcome so much to the Film Reviewer Podcast, Robert. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join me here. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So I would love to start by asking what it was about the film and television industry that made you decide to pursue a musical career within that industry. In, 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 the, in my travels, in my youth, um, Aaron Copeland was uh, my principal mentor. He's a very famous American composer that many of your audience will certainly be familiar with. Uh, and um, Copeland, Copeland had, um, he had mentioned to me that, uh, that the future for guys like me uh, was going to be heavily in, in production. He was really adamant about that. And here's this 80-year-old guy in, um, in like 1982 or so uh, giving me um, some advice about the film industry, uh, which I found very interesting, but I wasn't immediately receptive, not because I didn't love film, but because of my dedications to my musician, my musicianship and my... Um, my uh, dedication to the concert hall. But he said, you know, uh, you have a certain uh, quality that you know you love people, you empathize with stories, and that's even more important sometimes, you know, at times than the actual uh, technical qualities of being a good composer. So uh, there was a few years of, of me just kind of contemplating that, and I had a latent reaction because I got an opportunity to score uh, a short film. Um, from there, uh, there was a couple of you know small commercials. I remember one specifically for Lockheed, which was really um, interesting. You know, way back when, and I started to think, hey, hey, this is kind of fun. Maybe Copeland was right. <laughs> and um, right, <laughs> uh, it kind of grew from there because uh, you know uh, my interest in the movies was strong. So I started to dive in much more deeply. I started to become much more interested in some of the uh, the masters of film scoring that that I felt that you know not only was I responding to on my own, but that Copeland had mentioned to me. He said, you know, um, the colleagues that I have, friends of mine like Bernard Herrmann, Elmer Bernstein, uh, people like that. There, he's he's told me he said they're every bit as as talented and maybe even more so than my colleagues in the concert hall i i really wow. give, give this some thought so you know for me it was a bit of a progression from there until i started to get so engaged and love it so much um that that i found myself just passionately um not only engaged but very dedicated to um, to becoming a film composer so i i i love that i came you know not from just obsessing over every film score from when I was five years old. I think that gave me a perspective <laughs> that, that perhaps, that perhaps you, know, you, know, you know how that can be, where you can have a once removed perspective that can uh, be sometimes quite advantageous. And I think in my case, um, you know, uh, that, that that's, at least that, that's how it's happened um, for me. And uh, I guess uh, listeners have to decide whether or not that was to my advantage. Oh, I think it definitely was. I think that's a given. <laughs> so, and speaking about, you know, being incredibly passionate about film scoring, obviously, I mean, you've now worked in the industry for going on 25 years. Um, your resume, of course, is quite astounding. 
some, one of my questions I have for you, I guess, would be what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome early on in your career? Getting used to the collaborative nature of the business. You know, when I would go and write a piece um, that was, uh, you know, a piece of chamber music or a piece of symphonic music, the only thing I was concerned about was either conducting it myself or just having it played and then just, you know, not looking over my shoulder ever. And in, in film, one of the great things, by the way, that I love now about film is something I needed to get used to. And, you know, in, in talking about hurdles, it's the idea that you could write something that you're really attached to, that you feel strongly about. And that's all well and good, but you are collaborating. So you are in a room mm -hmm. with a director and producers and they're gonna weigh in. And you may think that you have given the film your absolute best and you have lit up the film with something that you think is great, but you are not the end of the story. It's all about how you're able to um, communicate with your director, with your producers, take in their ideas, take in their criticisms, sometimes suffer through having something that you love rejected. and. Um, I think that that was early on one of the things that I found challenging, that I <clears throat> that I ended up really loving um, in the end because again there's 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 different challenges to every creative endeavor endeavor and uh, um, the idea that you're collaborating and that um, you are not just isolated and sitting in a room pleasing yourself with a with a piece of music is actually a beautiful thing. You learn how to how to try to communicate better as a composer, because you're trying to hit a bullseye. You're not trying to be elusive, um, and as Copeland used to say, clear a room with an avant-garde piano sonata. You are looking for your music to speak. Uh, and um, I learned a lot that way. What would you say, I guess, in speaking on some of those earlier challenges that you might still be facing right now that you still have to kind of deal with even later on in your career? Well, now I think uh, because technology has offered every person in production so many choices so fast with regard to music that the, the uh, desire for choice is one of the current challenges. Um, in other words, um, you score a scene for a film and the director has already tempted with something else and maybe the, that director is used to having choices in other areas like, uh, you know, having a, a, a million fonts shown to him for uh, titles and things like that. In, in music now, we're having that same kind of um, issue where people love to hear choices and sometimes to the detriment of the focus of, of the film, of the, of the director, of the composer, certainly. And, um, and I, I think that that idea that we have music because of YouTube, because of iTunes, you know, all that stuff, so readily available so quickly. And because technology, you know, all the great samples that we use when we're, we're building demos for our, our films, it's so, um, it, 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 it offers so many good snapshots so fast that I think that we're burning through a lot of ideas these days more than ever before. I mean, it's not like um, a bygone era where maybe a composer like, for example, John Williams in the early days would sit at the piano with Spielberg over his shoulder and he would play, here's what happens when you begin to see the, sh the shark. And then he'd play the famous Jaws theme on the piano. He says, and that's on cellos and basses. And then the brass come in. And then you, know, and then you, have, this, um, you have this kind of personal... Um, story being told by the composer, but in advance of any demos of any kind. And so a, a director like Spielberg would be forced to just sit and listen tr and try to get inside the composer's head, but not really um, looked for, that's great, John. Can you give me about five others like that too? <laughs> so we can just sit and talk about them. It, it really, it really, um, it really seemed like we were in an era years ago of more focus and now we were we're in an era where there's a tremendous need for sometimes too many choices, and I think that may be not just my current challenge, but I think a lot of composers would would feel that way as well. 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, the the op the. I mean, I think that's just the way of currently today now, the obstacle of having such a variety of options in general, uh, especially in speaking with, you know, talking about samples and demos. I mean, because now you could arguably have what John Williams is describing already ready. So now they're hearing it and now they have their input on the actual overall uh, sound. So that definitely would be a challenge. So the 2018 Sundance Film Festival is a big one for you. Uh, we had Eugene Jarecki's film, The King, premiere. What was it like being at that premiere? It was very exciting. It was at the Mark Theater, which is uh, the, the big newer venue, uh, because they knew that they were going to sell a lot of tickets. Um, not only because Eugene is well-known at Sundance and well-loved at Sundance through the years, and I've kind of been on that ride with Eugene from the start, but um, Steven Soderbergh's the exec producer of The King, so he's also somebody that was, uh, um, his career was kind of born um, and nurtured at Sundance. So it was a very big deal. And the idea of a special events premiere was created mm -hmm. um, just for uh, the King, just for, for them to be able to show Eugene's film because they have such an intimate relationship with him and with Steven. So it was, it was quite exciting because there was none of the pressure that is usually on a film that's premiering at Sundance to compete and potentially um, look for a prize at the end of it. It was just about celebrating the um, th this new piece that has already been sold and just sharing it with, with um, Eugene's very loyal Sundance audience. So I, I had a great time. It was nice to spend a little time with Steven Soderbergh. I mean, with Eugene, I mean, we're very, very close because we have been close collaborators for many years. In fact, in post, I'm probably the longest single post collaborator that Eugene has. Wow. Um, and uh, and I and um, uh, Simon is also Simon Barker is also one of the uh, the longest collaborators. But I think that I I'm probably officially the one that's been there the longest with him. So we, we, you know, we have a great time together, but it was nice to spend some time with Steven and Ethan Hawke is also one of the producers. So he came out too and he's, boy, what a, what a uh, barrel of energy. He's a very uh, interesting guy. I mean, he's so smart and he was funny. Uh, and, uh, you know, he added a little zest to the, to the mix of the people that were there. Oh, I love it. Now, the film chronicles a musical uh, road trip taken in Elvis Presley's 1963 Rolls Royce and explores how Elvis lost his authenticity and became a king while his country lost her democracy and became an empire. What would you say were some of the hurdles that you had to overcome in finishing this project, if any? Yeah, you know, I mean, with, with, with Eugene and I, we have a shortcut for working together. We, we're just so familiar with each other. But every film that we do has has hurdles just based on the the mission of that particular film now with the king it's the first time that i worked with eugene where i didn't have like all of the screen screen time with the exception of maybe one or two little licenses we know so i dominated um musically um all the other films i carried the entire story by myself mm -hmm. I've always been Eugene's, Eugene's kind of like his, his thesis oversoul. You know, I would always be there to, to, to be his, um, his shadow philosophically um, as a composer. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, interjecting my own thoughts into the film or crystallizing his thoughts, I guess is probably what, what I'm doing more. So here we have this film that has a ton of source music, you know, coming from Elvis. Um, Elvis's contemporaries, other blues artists of sorts. I mean, there's music all over this film. Oh yeah, uh, and including, including by the way, I did some recreations as well. I, I recreated uh, um, uh, Strauss, uh, the famous 2001 theme, for for a moment of the film. I recreated a, a vintage. Uh, a rock and roll record called Rock in '88. I I did a few things like that, but the idea in this film was to suddenly quiet down and become almost a Zen-like focus for you know musically for Eugene's points to become clear. So the score 
appears just when you've taken in all this information, sometimes at fast pace and very loud, you know, with all the songs, and then suddenly, like a sucking sound, it's quiet, and the score has a kind of a uh, a pensiveness um, and thoughtfulness and wistfulness and stillness that um, most of my other scores for Eugene does not have. And, Interesting. Um, and and it, so it, the the challenge was to be relevant quickly, only done very quietly and fitting in well between all of this other noise and, and uh, you know, intensity uh, that, that came from sound around all of the score. So that was the big challenge. You know, there's less score. I still counted, you know, and there's a couple of other composers that had also contributed a little bit of um, score to the to the film as well. Yeah, and it's you know, the, and and they were nice nice uh, little additions. Eugene got to know them when he was editing in Berlin, um, and he thought it might be a nice little little added perspective. But but really, I'm the, you know, I've always been Eugene's sole voice in other films and and the lead voice here, um, and I still counted twenty some odd cues, but it just feels like they're you know. They're just so quiet. Uh, it's just not a dominant kind of score. Now mm-hmm. that doesn't mean a lack of power, because you know most uh, composers would probably argue that some of their best work is done in quiet when you're not noticing it so much, and you know when it's not the kind of extroverted kind of kind of um, sound that is fun to make, but yeah. may not be relevant. And you know you have to be you have to be able to be smart and be relevant and be effective and i think in a way that was harder than when i had free reign of eugene's other films what would you say you enjoyed most about scoring the king outside of the challenges i think it was finding you know it's a little bit of the same sort of thing that i was just saying it's finding the sweet spot in the quiet that um that felt like it was right thing to illuminate uh, Eugene's point. And a lot of times the score is there with Elvis's almost ghostly voice of him relaying something candidly about his life that he either regretted or or that um, had happened to him that is relevant to Eugene's point about mm-hmm. the parallel between his own life and the life of the country. So just finding that sweet spot tonally um was was definitely the biggest hurdle in in this particular case. So you also re, uh, recently completed the score for the HBO original documentary Atomic Homefront, a uh, film that focuses on St. Louis, Missouri's atomic past as a uranium processing center for the atomic bomb and the governmental and corporate negligence that led to the illegal dumping of the Manhattan Project radioactive waste throughout the North County neighborhoods. I have to admit, I never heard about this story until reading up about the film. Had you been aware of the dilemma that St. Louis had been facing prior to working on the film? No, you and I both. I, I had no idea. And I was kind of stunned when the film, uh, the early cuts of the film were teaching me what the hell was going on there. <laughs> yeah. And I, got, I have to admit that before writing a note, I was just staring at the screen going, oh, oh my God. Yeah. This is real? This is happening in... In you know, this was last year, so I'll say 2017. But you yeah. know, in, in, in contemporary in, the, in contemporary America, we have people dying from toxic waste that was um, somewhat carelessly put in a suburb of St. Louis from our experiments in World War II with the Manhattan Project. Um, you know, for developing the nuclear weapon and it's stunning that since we know, uh, because you know, we, we it's so measurable and it's so it's so public now. Since we and the people that are dying, I mean, there, there's so much documentation over these poor people's, you know, uh, their over their plight. It's just so dark. How is there not a full court press to fix this? It's exactly. just I gotta say, I was I was stunned. So. It's one of those moments where you get involved because you love your film work, uh, but you're doing something that you know is going to have a direct, immediate impact 
on people's lives if the film is effective and it moves um, viewers, other people, maybe other politicians um, or, you know, whoever to do something about this. I mean, there was one woman in the film uh, that didn't didn't make it to even see the premiere. She died oh my several gosh. weeks after the film after the film was mixed. And it's like, how sad is that? Um, I mean, and we're talking about some very sweet, you know, uh, very in, you know inspired, full of life people and their kids and their dogs, um, oh just like God. any of us, any of us. So so um, you know. Uh, Rebecca Camis is a very, very fine filmmaker, and she she managed to take the film into an area where she could tell that story, which is, you know, it's a lot to take in. So, you know, when you have a documentary like that, you're swallowing a lot of, a lot of depressing information, but you have to be able to have some uh, poetry in the film, too, because otherwise people will just go halfway through and go, oh, okay, I can't take it anymore, sorry. Yeah. I gotta turn. I've gotta turn this off. So Rebecca really knew how to how to dance that dance, um, and say what she needed to say in a beautiful filmic way, um, and um, and boy, it, it you know it was very satisfying to see the end result. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I gotta imagine it, it had to have been hard scoring the film when you're seeing all these stories. And again, it's this isn't fiction. It seems like it should be because it's just so over I the know. top. But I mean, it had to have been incredibly difficult to do the score for this film. Oh, oh, it you know because right because you're um, you're trying to do something which, as a technician, you know, you're as a professional film composer you're trying to accomplish while you're looking at something which is very hard to, to disassociate emotional reactions to. Now, of course, you might ask, and I would hope anyone would ask, why would you disassociate? Um, and the truth is, I didn't. But you have to disassociate enough to um, not, you know, bleed and gush all over the film, yeah. all of your power, powerful reactions. You have to be able to still be delicate with the subject and find a way in to create um, curiosity, seriousness, uh, all the things that are involved in, in documentary film scoring in a way that allows the film's message to come across the best way it can. Yeah, and I guess the light at the end of that tunnel would be that Hopefully, if you and the other crew, the cast and the crew for this film, you know, do a good enough job that it will help tell this story to a larger audience. Because, again, this is a story that really needs to be out there. Obviously, now it, it is. Um, so I guess that could be a driving motivator as well, even in those darker moments when you're faced with these stories that, you know, hopefully in me doing my job, I can help tell this story so that everyone else can be aware of the situation that St. Louis is facing. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I felt. I know that uh, you know that, that Rebecca felt that way. Madeline, the editor, felt that way. They, you know, we all we all had that same reaction. And come, I believe, this February twelfth next week, we get our chance to see how people react um, and and whether whether our efforts are going to make a difference. And I'm knocking on some wood right now. I certainly hope it, that that our efforts do make a difference. I definitely think it will. So staying in in the same vein of uh, documentary films that you've been involved with, so something else I'd love to touch on is your work with ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary series. So far, you've been involved in over seven projects with the series. What was it about 30 for 30 that drew you in? Oh, my God. Big subject I love to talk about. And by the way, just so you know, because there's one other director I worked on, uh, on a ESPN 30 for 30 film for and also a short, which was still – a 30 for 30 under the 30 for 30 banner, but I've done 13. Today. Wow. Okay. And, and, and I'm like, so, so psyched. I have a tremendous um, love of doing these films. I have a great relationship with ESPN and the executive producer and vice president of ESPN, John Dahl. And most of my films you, you may see, you may have seen in the credits, most of them are John Hawk, either as director or as the executive producer. Jim Potteris is a director that I've done a couple of those with as well. And he works kind of under the Hawk Films banner. Um, 
But I, when I first, when I did my first one, it was for the Louis Tion film uh, that was just the Farrelly brothers were the producers. Mm-hmm. The Lost Son of Havana is the name of the film, and. At first, I thought, I wonder if these films are going to be good. I wonder if it's going to be fun. I mean, they're sports films. Are they still going to have like the kind of, you know, the the dramatic beauty that I'm used to with my other feature film directors? But oh my gosh, did I quickly uh, just find out all about John Hawke's incredible inspiration and sensitivity and his way of st- telling a story? And by the way, these these sports stories even if you're not a sports fan it's really about human achievement human um at times human failure and how how people cope with changes in their lives and disappointment and and the you know just lots of emotional drama it's not really in the end about sports it's sports figures living their lives and experiencing their sports experiences uh, which are quite dramatic so I, I honestly um, loved it from the very beginning so from lost son of Havana on forward I cherish the moment when John Hawk or John Dahl calls me and says hey Robert we got a new one um, that we're we want you to come on board on and I'm like it's just psyched you know I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm giving myself a high five in the studio and by the way, I, I just got that call today, by the way. Oh, really? Some stuff for the, yeah, for the 150th uh, anniversary of college football coming up this coming year. So during the course of this year, there's going to be a, several films I'm going to be involved in that will premiere next year. That is um, terrific. And I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> totally psyched. So my last, my last um, uh, 30 for 30 um, my most recent one, I should say, is The Best of Enemies, um, which is a five-hour extravaganza, uh, the Celtics-Lakers rivalry, which is storied and was really fun to do. And I have to tell you, I, I want to share this with everybody. Um, this was the most difficult in one respect. Um, the production was assembled late, very late in the game, uh, and it's a five-hour production. I had a month, one. Oh, my gosh. To produce to produce five hours, because these things are nearly uh, through composed. There's very little moments of silence. I had to get up every day and sit down at like 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning, which is when I get into my studio, I'm I'm an early riser, and say, today I have to score this 15-minute segment of film, today. And then I have to go home, get some sleep, and get up and do the same thing again, and do it for weeks on end. Um, It was a real challenge. And you know, I set myself up with a kind of a thematic plan beforehand, and I, I was I was very I was armed with a lot of bullets going in, but I knew I was going to have to just, you know, work at a pace that I've never worked at before. And I, I like to work fast. I pride myself mm-hmm. on that. But that was something. And, I, <laughs> and you know, through the years, you know, and I don't mean to focus just on that, but you know, because you're broadly asking me about yeah, about those thirty for thirty films, I just adore them. Um, my favorite one uh, was probably uh, the Jim Valvano film, um, which I did uh, many years ago, Survive and Advance. And that was just spectacular film. What a human story that was. Um, but they're all great for their own reasons. They're all just, they have their own journey to them. And uh, the story continues for me because of the 150th anniversary of college football coming Definitely. up next year. So I guess a question I'd love to know then, or the answer to would be, when you initially started working with ESPN, did you have any idea that this collaboration would last as long as it has? Absolutely not. I, I thought I was kind of coming in to do a one-off for, for John, um, and uh, I happened to know one of the editors. and I thought, oh, this is going to be cool, you know, it's a good gig. I mean, I'm, I'm a big baseball fan, so, you know, Louis Tion, that's cool. But, you know, the first week of getting involved in just – feeling John's passion and his, his, his humanity. He's, he's a very sensitive guy. He's also somebody that among all directors that I work with, he has some of the greatest, f- like free giving trust 
of any director I work with. He just knows that you know what you're doing and he lets you just have at it. And he, his notes are sparing. And mm-hmm. I had two notes, one or two notes in the five hour film, Best of Enemies. But oh my early on, I, no- I, noticed, yeah, I noticed that his, his trust is so strong. If he thinks you're up to the task, he lets you go. And um, I loved it so much that, you know, that I was just like, John, I hope we do this again. And you know, sure enough, the call came quickly. We did it again very fast. And then again, and then again, and this is a variety, a variety of great um, outside producers that have come in on this. Uh, yeah. Kelly Rippo was one on one film, and the Farrelly brothers, and um, and and then and then Cyril just you know just all in house with with his his incredible staff at at Hawk Films. So it's been a tremendous thing for, for me to work with John and 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 with his his team and with Jim Potteritz and, and Phil Armando, the producer, Alex Evans is his, um, uh, you know, producer as well. And kind of somebody who oversees, uh, broadly the entire production. It's really good. Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be such a wonderful connection to have with a director that they actually trust you. I mean, in so many cases, I'm sure in a lot of your projects, you had touched on that before. Everyone has uh, say they all have a note they want to give on the overall score itself. And so it's got to be so refreshing, as you said, to just have two notes, you know, to have such sparing notes and to have a director that fully trusts your ability as a composer to just do the job because he knows you'll do a great job. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 incredible. The thing I told you at the very front of the interview about learning how to collaborate, to have people people respond and sometimes mm-hmm. reject music. If John if John Hawk was the very first director I ever encountered, um, I wouldn't have known how to deal with the collaborative um, back and forth as well because John, you know, was so you know I wouldn't have uh, known that things could be rejected because yeah. John. Um, he, he loves to for you to you know fashion uh, your vision um, and and to make it happen uh, on film. And if he really thinks you haven't connected with the film um, on something, he certainly, like any other mm-hmm. good collaborator, you know, good director, will let you know. But I've had so few moments like that over over the course of thirteen films um, that I, I you know barely can remember any of them yeah well and i mean i've had uh several composers on the show i've had ann nicotin and ariel marks on the show in the past and in speaking with them it just really became obvious to me that it is pretty rare like i feel like john has a rare ability here as a director to not only you have to find the talent also you know and again obviously you are an incredibly talented composer so in finding you he can trust you but it's kind of a rare ability to be able to just let go to a certain degree and let someone actually have their way on on a film that's close to them. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. 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 I'm, I, uh, I just knocked on some more wood because of that. (laughs) (laughs) I do, I do feel lucky, you know, uh, and I have that with a lot of my directors, the the Tom Lennon from night scales too. Like it's a, it's a different vibe from John, but equally as, as spirited and uh, you know i'm i feel pretty blessed yeah knife skills was actually an interesting film uh the actual premise of it was a documentary that documented the launch of a restaurant whose staff and uh were men and women that were just out of prison what was it like working on a project like that kind of piggybacking off your comment there yeah yeah um uh incredibly soul satisfying for me because Tom Lennon, first of all, is a is a uh, a real life force. I mean, this guy is so so um, energetic, and he's he's um, his mind is incredibly active in every way, and he's so interested in in filmmaking and in what everybody else is doing. And he, I, I noticed it at the film festivals where he just seems so buoyant about everybody, all other filmmakers work. And he just thinks that it's the greatest business ever. So he comes with that. Now he's dedicated, he's very focused on his work and he's already won an Oscar. Uh, and um, he's been nominated a few times and with really good reason. Um, the guy is a tremendous talent. So. He perceives opportunities very fast, and I think that he has described many times where um, he sat down with the manager Brandon from 
from the restaurant that he ended up, uh, you know, bringing to life in mm-hmm. Knife Skills. And he knew by what Brandon was telling him about this this restaurant that an opportunity was about to to arise. He said, you know, he tells me, he says, oh, I knew right then. There's a film there. <laughs> and what what unfolded for the next year, year and a half, however long it took to to make the entire film, it's just incredible. I mean, the, the story is about these, as you know, about these, you know, very challenged humans that have had to go through um, you know, incarceration for very, very serious crimes, but they have an opportunity to resurrect entirely by um, starting over fresh and becoming French chefs and learning the art of French, you know, culinary art and, and, um, and you know, and becoming part of the opening of this French restaurant, Edwin's in Cleveland. And so there's this amazing phoenix rising quality to the characters in this film and by the way tom is not not afraid to show you the one or two failures and for brandon the the uh, the manager to talk about the fact that not everybody has the same track of success yeah. but there's an overwhelming yeah there's an overwhelming success rate um for these these folks that just have completely been reborn spiritually and emotionally. Um, and so the story has got this great, happy um, sort of end result. Sometimes films films that are about, well, you know, dark challenges are meant to just drop you on your ass and leave you there so that you can, you, you can, right, so you can ponder what, you know, what kind of, um, you know, serious situation that particular person is in and perhaps move you to act in some way, you know, if it's that kind of film. Um, this film still, I feel, motivated. In fact, I, I am so excited to go. I want to go to this restaurant. I told a friend of mine from Cleveland, he said, I'm coming soon. And the very first thing we're going to do is we're going to go to Edwin's because I have got to go to this restaurant for myself and just sit in it after scoring this film. But I, I, I was um, uh, very inspired to try to create a very colorful score that shows three things: um, the 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 kind of the the progress, uh, the energetic progress of the restaurant coming together and being born, mm-hmm. which is very active. The more wistful um, kind of yearnings of of the the reflective thoughts of the characters that was another aspect of the film score and the third was to just provide some um, unusual color that connects to the idea of being a French chef like there's a big um, uh, there's a grand waltz that I had written in one scene there's also a, uh, an orchestral variation on the the very eclectic opening to this film that is about their ability to get ready, you know, during their last uh, last five days of, of you know, uh, of becoming French chefs and getting the restaurant ready, which is a symphonic variation. So it's um, connecting to the color of, of uh, you know, high art and cuisine and yeah. you know, all of all that we think is, is connected to French, um, you know, higher art, but, uh, you know, nonetheless using the eclectic theme from my opening. And then there's a, a variation on a, on, a, on, a, on a Bach theme. So there's this other kind of color that is um, meant to um, connect to the overarching cu- um, culture of French culinary art at a high level. So it was a very, very cool project. I'm so excited for Tom that he was nominated and for all of us. You don't know what's going to happen uh, oh, yeah. you know, at the Oscars. Um, and, and that's almost not the point, you know. The nomination really is almost more um, joyful because, the, you know, one only one film can take the Oscar away and, and every film that gets to that level deserves to win. So there's a, a happy, sad quality to Oscar mm-hmm. night in that way. Whereas the nomination is just celebrating these these five films that cut through hundreds of films oh, yeah. to get to where they're getting. And and I, I, I just think the world of Tom and, and Knife Skills and 
here's another another person that I so sincerely hope I work with again. Definitely. I, I just love your enthusiasm about film in general. I mean, you can really tell that this is definitely what you were meant to do. So mm, Yeah, I mean this is where this is where Copeland was right. He said, you know, you just love you just love these everyday stories that mm -hmm. get brought to life on the big screen. You will find a way. Because that's the thing, is that empathy will um, is really the 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 way in to finding the notes that are right for a film. Um, and uh, I certainly, I certainly come in staring at that screen, going, "Wow, how 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 great, or how moving, or how funny!" And then, bingo, I'm off. <laughs> so out, outside of film, you'd actually recently worked with the New York City Ballet on "The Wind Still Brings." What can you tell listeners about your involvement with that project? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, and on a, ver a very different type of feeling for me because the concert hall, we, we are circling back to the very first moments of this this um, conversation. Yeah. That's where I started, that was my dedication. And the, the ballet, although it's it's a, a collaborative art because it's about dance, is, is you know, deeply uh, connected to concert life. It's much more connected to concert life than, than film work because yeah. Uh, especially New York City Ballet likes to um, likes to celebrate um, a lot of um, symphonic masterpieces that are not necessarily ballet uh, scores um, that that become ballet scores because of the um, the desire of the choreographer and of the company to bring something mm -hmm. to life. So here here I am as a quote unquote symphonist, somebody who you know comes in with an orchestral background that loves to write orchestral pieces, and my um, and my good friend Andrew Litton, who's the incredible new music director of New York City Ballet, who said to me, Robert, this has got your name on it. Um, we um, have a choreographer named Troy Schumacher, who's a principal soloist in the company, but he's also a choreographer within the company. And um, he's gonna premiere some at the New York City uh, Gala uh, in the fall. And, we, and he's picked um, wanting to, you know, redo William Schumann's piano uh, quartet in D minor um, as a symphonic piece to, you know, to choreograph to, to for, for the premiere. And so it meant completely reinventing this piece. Oh and first gosh. he had to really kind of get in, get it, get inside William Walton's um, uh, original um, piece, which is for piano and string trio, and then figure out how to com completely reinvent it. And um, it's much the same. Uh, I don't know how much uh, classical music you, you're intimately familiar with, but if, if um, and a lot of your listeners may know this, that, for example, Ravel orchestrated um, Mussorgsky. Um, and so you have a composer uh, delighting in the fact that he's going to take a piece by another composer, not even a French composer, and, and um, filter it through his brain and orchestrate it um, the way he sees it, and so there's a lot of, a lot of um, moments like that in the symphonic literature, and and I've just added a small piece to that by, by uh, creating um, an orchestral version of um, of this early William Walton piece, and it was it was great. I had to use all my my musical powers because um, it was a very difficult, difficult oh, yeah. piece to pull, bring to life, um, and I just saw. They brought it back for the winter season, and I just saw the last performance of it. Um, it'll be put to bed now for a while, um, but I saw the performance Sunday before the Super Bowl, and uh, you know, just was um, uh, you know reliving my um, my happiness with having done it. And I definitely will will want to do more. I used to talk to Copeland about how, you know he loved the ballet too, and he had he had several great. Um, successful ballets through the years um, um, among them Appalachian Spring one of the great American ballets and, and great American symphonic works as a result so oh yeah baby that was that was um, that was a great experience for me gosh it's so wonderful and it's so great that you're actually able to see it as well so looking back on your career as a composer did you ever imagine that you this career of yours would be so successful and exciting as it's been you know, you, you, yeah, you know, you, I think that anybody who loves music that wants to write music for a living and, you know, you're young, you, 
like anyone else that has high aspirations, you're dreaming. And in that, in those dreams, you are hoping with all of your heart and soul that those dreams can, can actually come true. But um, so many things have to happen. You know, life intervenes and, and sometimes, uh, you know, you fall upon some hard luck and miss, miss time certain things. Sometimes you don't make the right decisions uh, for places that you really feel you need to take your career or people that you think that you need to, to meet. I mean, all those things that are instincts that are not, that are, that are extra musical. Um, they, they are just things that happen when you're trying to build a career. You can, you can really kind of suck at that while mm-hmm. being a really talented person. So those dreams that you have can get derailed for any number of reasons. So um, I, I hoped, like any of us, to, to be successful. But um, I couldn't have imagined some of the things that have happened to me thus far. And, you know, that track is, I'm still, I'm still rising. I'm still kind of uh, evolving as a composer. My career is evolving. So there's still yeah. so much more to experience. And I don't know, I'm still dreaming. And, um, uh, and I don't know what these next 10 years are going to bring. Um, but, um, you know, you're, you, you just always hope that you do good work, that the work gets recognized, that it leads to other good things. But you, you, the only thing you really can control is doing good work, good work when the opportunity arises. And that's the one thing um, that I've always tried to do. I have a very strong kind of blue collar Bronx um, you know, work ethic. And, and that's the only part that I can really control. Yeah. If you had the chance and keeping this retrospective look here going, if you had the chance, is there anything else that you would have done differently in your career? There was a time, I'm not sure I still feel this way, but I'll tell mm-hmm. you, honestly, I'm a New Yorker. A lot of people said, hey, listen, move to California. <laughs> um, what, what the hell are you doing here? You want to work on the biggest films that are out there? Um, be be more um, geographically close to the action and to all those people that maybe you can socialize with more and whatever. And, and, mm-hmm. and that, you know... There's, there's wisdom to all of that stuff, um, but I love the, the fact that I've had, had a lot of inspiration um, growing up in the East, and I still draw on, on all the collisions of humanity that happen here in New York. So the, the, it's, a, it's a kind of a, an almost regret about, about that move to L.A. because it was, it was you know, expressed to me on so many occasions, but now, see, here's the thing. Now, uh, the ge- the geography is going away a little bit. I mean, I go out there quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that this year I'm going to have a lot of opportunities on 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 bigger projects. Um, and in a moment's notice, I just go back and forth. Yeah. Um, we also have the ability. Look at you and I having this conversation, right? Technology has changed the geography as well. And I think that um, that ability to come back and forth, but draw on the things that feed me the most as a composer in the East is is a good thing. But that, that in terms of regrets, I really don't have many because I don't believe in regretting too many things. If you're trying your hardest all the mm-hmm. time, if you don't try your hardest, that's a regret to have. Oh, yeah. I don't feel it. You know, I never feel that way. Um, I'm always trying my hardest. Um, but that that idea of deciding to move out west or not move out west is really the only thing that comes to mind as something that was debated for a, a, a long time. Yeah, and I think it's it's a tough thing for anyone, I believe, that's in the film industry, television as well, that that issue of geographic location. I mean, myself as mm-hmm. a visual effects artist, is something that I faced with my first job where I ended up having to move to a different country for my first job. And had I not made that move, my career would have been drastically different. So I think it is great touching on what we were talking about with technology that now more and more it's easier to still be able to have those opportunities, but not necessarily have to move as much. 
more and more composers are saying, hey, you know, I really want to have that um, estate uh, upstate in the countryside in, in, in um, New York or in, in Vermont or mm-hmm. or um, I want to come back and forth from Oregon or, uh, you know, or, you know, like that's happening more and more with people now. And, um, um, you know, so you don't have to be kind of right there in everybody's face all the time. I think that as long as you do your best to make yourself available for whatever you need to do, if you're that flexible, that's that's important. That's the most important thing. Uh, to close the interview, I would love to know, is there any upcoming projects for this year that you would love to tell the listeners about? Um, I'm working on the bit player. It's uh, the follow-up to um, Mark Levinson, uh, Mark Levinson's last film, Particle Fever, which was a great documentary where um, Walter Murch, the legendary Walter Murch, was involved in, which is a great project. But now Mark, without Walter, is doing his next film, which is about, and I hope your whole audience can go and get this book and read about this guy, because I didn't know about him either, Claude <laughs> Shannon. Claude Shannon, he, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, I don't know who he is, but uh, I didn't. Claude Shannon is maybe the most important single scientist and inventor of our time. He is unequivocally the father of the information age. Starting in 1948 when he wrote a paper that was his ability to, to talk about data collection as a sequence of, of, of zeros and ones in numbers, mm-hmm. um, he was the one that got every single person interested in, in harnessing data for what we eventually would have on the internet and everything in our, you know, everything about our phones, about the internet, about this conversation through Skype, um, everything falls back to Claude Shannon's uh, incredible um, uh, discoveries and and um, you know and theories um, in in a you know what now seems to be an era that we didn't even think had that kind of reasoning and thought. Attached quite yet, but Claude Shannon is the man. He is he is the guy for our time. And this film, the the bit player, is about Claude Shannon, and it's a really really good film. I hope everybody watches it. And uh, upcoming, there's there's you know I mentioned ESPN is coming up. Um, I have a series that I'm going to do called Vanished, which is a dramatic series. Uh, being it's it's still in the pre-production phase, but my my good friend Reinhard Denke, that's D-E-N-K-E, who's written a bunch of things, he's the uh, writer on this. It's a great um, drama, eight-part series that's based on something true. That's coming up. And in the short term, if you're having a fun time watching the Olympics, watch out for a Coke spot, um, which is called Mural, but you'll know it by a bunch of uh, graffiti characters that are on a wall in a city that spark to life and slink around buildings or roll off a building because one of them one of them is like a paper mache uh, kind of um, graffiti character and they wind up conspiring they all go all through the city and they they fly high into the sky to a water tower and they end up because they were fawning after the coke bottles that they saw mm-hmm. all the humans drinking and they end up with their own coke bottles sitting up by a water tower high in the sky in the city and it's it's just a really fun uh spot to watch and that'll be running a lot on on the olympics oh my gosh i love it robert you just got so many things going on all all the time i you know um i i i'm blessed to be busy but you know i never take one second second of it for granted because um you know uh, like I was saying before, life can intervene and it could all just somehow disappear. But luckily and happily, I say, um, I'm having a great time and there's a lot to do. That is terrific. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for taking time out of your day at the studio here and joining me on the podcast. I had a great time with you. Uh, I love talking about the work. You had great questions. I had a lot of fun answering them. And uh, I, um, I hope that anybody who listens to this has fun as well. Well, that's the end of episode 11 of the Film Revere podcast. Be sure to show your support for the FR podcast by leaving a review on iTunes, Google Play Music, 
or wherever you happen to listen to the show. Another great way to show your support is by becoming a Film Revered Patreon at patreon.com slash filmrevered. Also be sure to get your free audiobook and 30-day trial from Audible by going to audibletrial.com slash frpodcast. Lastly, next week, I will be joined by the incredibly talented and always funny actor, Cress Williams, who is known more recently for his role as Black Lightning on CW. Thanks again from all of us here at Film Revered. Have a great week.